Okay, join me in Shema. I think we can do it together this time. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. Say these words after me. Listen, you who pursue righteousness. And seek after God. Consider the rock from which you were cut. And the quarry from which you were hewn. Consider Abraham your father. And Sarah as the one who gave birth to you. These are the very words of God. Amen. Please sit down. Amen. I love that passage from Isaiah. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But we came out of the same quarry as the Hebrew people did. Now, what I would like to do this afternoon is to take a look at Jesus as a Jewish rabbi. Now, I want to preface this. We'll do the same thing we did this morning, by the way. I'll talk and we'll take a break. I'll talk and we'll take a break. I'm a little uncomfortable. You haven't asked more questions. It probably means I'm too dominant. But feel free. And I will stop occasionally for questions. We had some great discussions among several of us at lunch. So I know there are some great questions. By the way, I just love the fire in you guys. This, I can't tell you what kind of heaven this is for a teacher to have a whole group who are not here because you have to be. And I don't have to collect any papers or give any exams. And it, you just love Jesus. And this is, this is awesome. It's for a teacher something that uh, makes teaching worthwhile. I do this once in a while just for therapy. Um, a couple of beginning comments, and then I want to introduce you to the world of the rabbi. And I think I'm going to say some things to you that will be um, maybe a little bit more radical than some of the stuff this morning, because we have really distanced ourselves in our understanding of Jesus from his world. And I think we've done it out of respect. I think we've done it because of anti-Semitism, I think we, respect, I mean, for Jesus, I think we've done it out of anti-Semitism. I don't think we really realize what it means or meant that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Did you realize Jesus was not a Christian? He was not a Christian. He was not a born-again believer. He was a Jewish rabbi. He went to a synagogue. Now, you can say, well, there weren't any churches. I understand this. Christianity started later. Yes, he's the Christ on whom Christianity is built. I believe that with all my heart. He himself was 100% a Jew. He talked like a Jew. He looked like a Jew. He ate what Jews eat. He did what Jews do. And he went to synagogue, not to church. And somehow that's foreign to us. It's just not what we think. A couple of things that I want to say by way of introduction beginning, because of some of the radical things that are going to come up. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the very Son of God. In every sense, you can mean that. And I want you to hear me say that. The question is, when he was here on earth as the Son of God, and a fully human Jew in the first century A.D., what was the relationship between those two? Another way of saying it is, what did he do in his divine power, and what did he do in his human nature? Were miracles the divine side of him, or the human side, filled with the Spirit of God? 
when he knew what people were thinking, is that because he was God or because he was a brilliant observer of people and had the Holy Spirit in him that could give him those insights? When he knew the future, is it because he was God or because he was human and had a perfect sense of what was going on because he was such a student of human nature and he had the Spirit of God that led him to understand what was going to come next? Now, Christianity in our time has tended, at least non-liberal Christianity, has tended toward making much of what Jesus said and did divine. I go the other way. I believe Jesus was here on earth as the Son of God. I'll say it again. 100%, the very Son of God. He had to keep God's promise, so he has to be God. I believe, if I may use this metaphor, and it's very limited, so don't hold me to it, that Jesus took his divineness and said, yes, I'm the Son of God, yes, I am God in every sense, I'm going to put that up here. I can take it anytime I want. I'm not going to use it. My miracles come out of my human nature. My knowing the future comes because I have the Spirit of God who can give me those insights or because I am a student of human nature. He came, I believe, to show us what it means to be fully human, filled by the Spirit of God. Now, he came as Jesus, the, the Son of God. I believe that we need to look at him in his human nature. Now, I realize that's an artificial separation because if he was truly one person, you can't just rip him apart and say it's up there. In the book of, Ephes in the book of um, Philippians, Paul writes this, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grabbed for, but rather he emptied himself of his godness and took on the form of a man, the form of a servant. Now, what has emptied himself of his godness mean? Luther says, emptied himself means he decided not to use it. He couldn't get rid of it, he was still, but he said, nope, that's not what I'm going to do. And I believe right up till the very end, Jesus is functioning as the perfect, sinless, blameless human rabbi of incredible talent, unbelievable dedication and work to being what he was. Now, we can debate that all afternoon, and there would be 88 of you and 82 points of view. I'm not going to make this the basis of what I'm going to teach you. What I want you to see is this afternoon, without denying his divinity, I want to look at Jesus in his human nature. And the fact I don't talk about his divinity, please do not take that to mean I don't believe it. I ended this morning by saying, Jesus hung on the cross as God to keep God's word of the blood path. So you know I believe that. I want to look at him in his human nature. And that to most people is an incredible insight because that means when Jesus says, be like me, he means it. And to say, but I can't because you were God, he'll say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Oh, yes, you can be like me. Okay. So let me take you to the world of the rabbi. Now, the first thing is we've got to go to an entirely different world. Jesus did spend 40 days and nights in the desert, but that's all we know of in the desert other than he walked through a couple of times. His life was spent around the Sea of Galilee, which those of you who've been there know to be a very different place. We could dim the lights just a little bit. In the first century, this was the land of Israel, mostly the land of honey other than the Judah wilderness. There was a province called Judea. Now, Judea was the... God, I hate to use this word because it's so loaded today, conservatives. 
And I don't mean theological conservatives, meaning they took the Bible seriously. I mean, these were the people who were traditionalists. Maybe that's a better word. They didn't want to change anything. They knew that when the prophets died, there was no more prophecy. They knew that when the prophets died, there was no more healing. They knew healing was a bunch of malarkey. They knew there were no angels, that there was no resurrection of the dead. They knew this. The Judeans were very traditional. That was the province of Judea. In between is the province of Samaria. Those were the people that had intermarried when the Babylonian captivity, uh, the Assyrian captivity happened and had blended the godly religion, the true religion of God, with paganness. They were called half-breeds. Most Jews believed they were not truly in the image of God. They had given up the image of God when they took on their half-breedism. And they were hated. If you were a Jew and walked through Samaria and you were by yourself, somebody would kill you. If you were a Samaritan and you walked through Judea or Galilee by yourself, somebody would kill you. And it happened to a lot of people. It wasn't safe to travel alone through the territory of the other. So no love lost between them. Then there was the pagan territory I mentioned, oops, I'm going to go skip to that first, that I mentioned this morning, the land of the seven called the Decapolis. Those were Greeks. If we get time this afternoon, I want to show you the one story where Jesus goes there. Only went there once, probably was there an hour. Why is it called Decapolis when it's also the seven? Okay, um, great question. Uh, let, that's, we'll, we'll assume that's God's interruption. It was a group of ten cities founded in 333 B.C. by Alexander the Great, Greek. Alexander was, yeah, he was a military guy. we got military people here who could tell you all about him. I guess one of the greatest generals that ever lived. Is that what they say? But the number one thing about Alexander was, Alexander's a missionary, and he says that himself. His goal was not to conquer the world. His goal was to change the world. How? He wanted to change the world by getting people to become Hellenistic. Hellenism is the view that the human being is the center of the universe, your mind, your body, and your creations. So how would Alexander change the world? He said, give me four things. Give me sports, the media, education, and religion. I'll change the whole world. So he introduced the gymnasium, the school, the arena, sports, the theater, media, and the temples, religions. And he would, as he marched across the world, muster out soldiers that had finished their term of duty, give them 40 acres, that's a, just a way of saying it, much more than the local population, and he would plant little cities, and everyone had an arena, a theater, a gymnasium, and a temple. And he said, when these people see what happens when you make the human being the center of the universe, called humanism, they'll fall in love with it and they'll all leave their backward, God-centered, God is number one in the universe, and did he ever change the world? And all of those things you came here to learn about in, by way of perspective in the world you live in are here today because of Alexander the Great. Now, who won? Alexander or the Apostle Paul? We know who's going to win, but to this point, Alexander's probably ahead on the scoreboard. Anyway, he made 10 of those pagan Greek cities in this area and named it the 10 cities. Deca, 10, Polis, cities. The Jews came along and said, Oi, Gaval, look how wicked those cities are. The gymnasium, the word gumnas, means naked. Gymnasium is a place to be naked. So you went to school naked. 
that was just considered appropriate to the human body. The temples all had prostitution, male and female, male to male, female to female, male to female. It didn't matter. The whole, the whole worship, how do you become one with the God? How do you become in the spirit? You have sex with one of the, that was the whole world of Hellenism. And they said, how could this place be so wicked? How could it become so ungodly? They got 2,000 pigs grazing on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, all destined to end up in the temples of the God of Orgy, Dionysus, that stood overlooking the Sea of Galilee, into which the demons ran, and they all ran down into the hell. How did they become so wicked? Well, the rabbis noticed in Joshua 3, verse 10, it says, And Joshua drove out the pagan nations, Hivites, Girgashites, Perizzites, Amorites, Hittites, Vegemites, I forget the other ites that's in there. He drove them all out. And the rabbis said, we know why this area is so wicked. Those seven pagan nations all ran away and settled here. Now, they knew that didn't happen. It's a picture. But that's why the rabbis called it the land of the seven. The seven what? The seven pagan nations. Now, let me just show you that this is, I'm, I'm way off. Give me a little more light, please. Right, give me. Would you please put on a little more light? Um, take your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 5. They also nicknamed this the other side. Remember, the Jews lived in Galilee, the Orthodox, the religious Jews. They called it the other side. They called it a far country. A certain young man went to his dad and said, give me the share of my inheritance. And he took the money and went to a far country. He's across the sea. His dad can see him every morning. That doesn't communicate because we don't know the geography. But they also nicknamed this the land of the expelled ones. The people who Joshua kicked out. The seven pagan nations. By the way, Stephen in his sermon in the book of Acts mentions those seven pagan nations again. Now, in Hebrew, the word for expelled, divorced, kicked out of school, is gerus, G-E-R-U-S. And to make a word plural, gerus, you add I-M to the end of it. So somebody who's been kicked out, a group of people who've been kicked out are gerusim. Somebody read Mark 5, verse 1. Gerasim, read again, please. Now, notice the footnote. What does it say in the footnote? Gadarenes. Okay. You see the problem? Western translators don't know what to do with this. Where in the world did he go? I think they've missed the point. It's not a place. It's not the Gadarenes, it's not the Gergesenes, it's not the Gerasenes. Gerasenes would be Jerash, that's 30 miles, 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. Gadarenes would be Gadara, that's 15 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. We don't even know of a Gergesa. What the writer is saying is he went to the Gerasene. He went to the land of the expelled ones, the land of the seven. Okay, so they lived here. Now, in Galilee, up at the top, let me drop back just a little bit here. In Galilee was the province with the Orthodox Jews, the religious Jews, the Pharisees. Unfortunately, they've gotten a bad name. I'll try and reclaim their reputation a little bit this afternoon. Okay, now, God give me the 
insight to know which, how much of this to do and how much not to do. This part of the country was largely empty after the Babylonian captivity. When Ezra and Nehemiah Zerubbabel returned, they settled in Judea. They were the traditionalists. Most Jews stayed in Babylon. Why go back? Our country's still under Persia. We exchange one Persian prison for another. So they stayed in Babylon. By 200 BC, there were a million Jews in Babylon, mostly very godly people, and 150,000 Jews in Israel. Then came the Maccabees. And the Maccabees rose up as a group of freedom-fighting terrorists, Taliban, and drove out the pagan people who held them. And the Jews were free for the first time since 586 BC. And those people in Babylon said, let's go home. So in the generation between 167 and the Maccabees and Jesus' time, more than, a million, uh, more than half a million Jews left Babylon and moved back to the old country, Israel. Now, where did they move? Well, Galilee's the only place with space. So they settled in Galilee. And they founded cities like Cana, Nazareth, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Magdala, um, um, Gadara, not Gadara, that was the capital city. Um, I can't think of it. Gennesaret, um, Gamla, all cities except Gamla mentioned in your New Testament over and over again. But this pe these people were not traditionalists. They raised their hands when they sang. They danced in the synagogues. Their rabbis all healed the sick. They prophesied. And the Judeans thought these were a bunch of nudniks. Who do you think you are, you bunch of uneducated charismatics? Where did Jesus go? Jesus is a Galilean, not a Judean. He has 11 Galilean disciples. Guess who the 12th is from? Judea, but guess who the 12th is? Judas. Judas is the only Judean disciple. The rest are all Galileans. He is a Galilean Jew, not just a Jew, but a Galilean Jew. So let's go to Galilee and see what a Galilean Jew and a Galilean rabbi would have been. I'm going to skip this. Okay? Take you to the area. The Sea of Galilee, now I've got to take you back here, the Sea of Galilee has those four groups. Orthodox Jews living here. I didn't show you that. I, I'm sorry. I'm frustrated because I'm seeing already my time is going to run out. And Okay. There are four groups of people who live around the Sea of Galilee. Let me just show you who they are and where they lived. Here was the city of Tiberias, just a single city of about 60,000 in Jesus' day, maybe at its highest point. It was the home of the Herodians. The Herodians were secular Jews not religious, Jews, pro-Roman, pro-Herod. Most of them wealthy, but not religious. They're the Christians who go to church just on Easter. I mean, they, they weren't anti-God. They just didn't do much religious stuff. Here was Gamla. That's where the zealots lived. The people who believed they had to bring the kingdom of God with the knife. They always mistook Jesus for a zealot, even his own disciples. Oh, are you going to fight? Are you going to fight? When are we going to fight? Are you going to fight? Are you going to fight? The zealots had their headquarters at a city called Gamla. The zealots were committed to killing, or at least resisting, anybody who was Roman, Greek, or collaborated with them. 
So they assassinated Jews for 125 years. They slaughtered and they slaughtered you, and they slaughtered and they slaughtered and they slaughtered. Jesus had one disciple named Simon the Zealot. You always get a kick out of that because he had another disciple named Matthew who was a Roman tax collector. And how you put a Roman tax collector and a zealot in the same class and ask them to get along, I'll never know. I, I think we Christians have a lot to learn about getting along if Jesus was able to do that. On this side was the Decapolis with the pagans. We mentioned that. And here in the northwest corner, the land of the Twelve, were the Orthodox Jews. Okay? That area is sometimes by Christian scholars called the Triangle. I'll show you why. There are three cities, Chorazin, Capernaum, I'm sorry, Bethsaida, Capernaum, that are about three miles apart, three by three by three. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Okay, there's a three Jesus cursed is what the Christians always say. Jesus called God's judgment on them if they didn't change. The argument I make is they did change, and we can discuss that, but he did call God's judgment on them. You are right. The Bible says most of Jesus' miracles were performed in Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin. I added up all the teaching verses of Jesus in the entire Bible, just the teaching verses. More than 70% of Jesus' teaching happened in or right next to those three cities. Now tell me that doesn't surprise you. I would have guessed Jesus went teaching and healing around an area half the size of Colorado. He picked an area th three miles by three miles by three miles, and he hardly ever left it. And what he did in that little area, smaller than most townships, changed the whole world. I think that's worth noting. So let's go to that triangle. Now I'd like to take you to this mountain and show you what it would have looked like. That's Mount Arbel. The view from there is spectacular. That's the Monarbel. Tiberius is here. Decapolis is here. The triangle area goes around to the left. And I'm just going to move through this a little bit just to show you what's there. Here's where Jesus lived. The villages are Magdala, where Mary came from. Mary of Magdala, Magdalene, you say in Greek. Magadan, mentioned four times in the New Testament. Maybe the Mount of Beatitudes, I don't know for sure. Chorazin here. Bethsaida here. Let's say it here, Capernaum here. And that was the world Jesus knew. It was a world of mostly farmers. A little bit of fishing happened there. I had a whole fishing thing I was going to show you, but I'm going to skip that because I apologize. You'll have to invite me back. <laughs> Let me take you to Capernaum, the town where Jesus made his home. Okay, Capernaum was a small village of about 2,500 people on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was, in their world, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Northwestern. No, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Oxford. Now, we don't realize that. If you take the Mishnah, which is the record of Jewish thinking from the 100 years from 0 to 100, there are more quotes from the rabbis of that place, Capernaum, than all the rest of the rabbis of the world put together. Jesus didn't do his ministry in the hollers of Arkansas 
or in the jungles of Central America. Jesus did his ministry at Princeton and Harvard and Yale. He went to where the best of the best were. That touched me because it's different. I looked at him as a peasant. So let's go to Copernicus. And again, our time is so short that I can't do justice to what we ought to really study. The main structure of Copernicus is the synagogue. And you see that large building. Actually, that's the synagogue of shortly after Jesus' time. Let me take you down there. Looks like this today. What's amazing about this synagogue, well, the one of Jesus' day is underneath. The black stone is probably the synagogue that Jesus knew. It was destroyed by the Romans, and about 400 years later, a new one was built on top following the same outline. So he wouldn't have seen this. He would have seen this. All black stone. That would have been the town where Jesus would have known. What's amazing about that synagogue is this. Now, it doesn't look big. It's about the size of this room. I don't think it's much bigger than that. That is the school of the synagogue of Capernaum. By four times, that is the biggest synagogue school ever found anywhere in the world until the 1500s. This was the biggest rabbinical school that existed in the entire world. And that's where Jesus chose to go to teach. Now, again, I, I apologize for this. I'm going to skip over and get to this rather than study Capernaum. If you have questions, you can ask me later. What was it like to be a first century rabbi? Now, just bear with me for a few minutes because I think this is a really profound way to look at Jesus. In Jesus' day, there were many rabbis. The word rabbi means honored person, honored one, rabbi. Rabbi at that time was not an office. It was not a title. You didn't get ordained and you didn't get a degree. It simply meant because of your godliness and your wisdom, you were honored by others. Jesus was called rabbi by five different kinds of people, a Roman, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, his own disciples, and a, a, a Phoenician. So he's obviously recognized as somebody who is a rabbi. Now, there are two types of rabbis in their world. The first were called Torah teachers. The word Torah is our word for the first five books of the Bible. Torah teachers were considered to be people who were masters of the Torah. That simply means they knew the Torah by memory. You had to know the first five books of the Bible by memory. Without question, you had to know them by memory. And not only know them by memory, but be able to work from them. Secondly, they were master teachers. They were brilliant. They could use parables. They could use alliteration. They could use creative ways of blending Bible verses together and telling stories. These were awesome teachers called Torah teachers. They were recognized by the community. No ordination, no degree, no installation, no hiring. The community simply said, we recognize in this person these gifts. He knows the Torah, and he is a great teacher, so we're going to come and listen to him. However, he was limited in the sense a Torah teacher can only teach what the community believes is right. He they did not have freedom to do midrash. They had the freedom to think of new parables, new applications. It's like me. I'm an ordained pastor in a, in a Dutch Reformed denomination. When I became ordained, I took an oath that said, if I believe something contrary to my denomination, I promise not to teach it, to seek to change it, and if I cannot find a satisfactory change, that I will leave the denomination. That's a Torah teacher. 
So a Torah teacher would teach like this. Three parts, always. It is written. And he would quote the text. He knew it by memory. It is written. And that means, and he would explain, with a parable, with a story, with an alliteration, something. According to, and then he would quote, Akiba, you hear me doing that, Shmuel, Hanina ben Dosa, Hillel, Shammai, because that's the authority that supports the meaning. That's a Torah teacher. But brilliant, brilliant people understand that, but limited by the authority of others or the interpretation of others. In Jesus' world, there was also a small group of what are called rabbis with smicha. Say smicha. Okay. We know of about a dozen by name from the hundred years that Jesus lived right in the middle of, 30 B.C. to 70 A.D. So they're not common. They don't exist in Judea. Now, what is a rabbi with smicha? Well, sometimes it's a Torah teacher who's moved up. But let's look at what is a rabbi with smicha before I tell you what smicha means. First of all, a rabbi with smicha is a master of the Torah and the Haftarah. Now, Haftarah is simply a Hebrew word that means the rest. So we could say, I probably should put it this way, a Torah teacher, I'm sorry, a teacher with smicha is somebody who is a master of the whole Bible, which, by the way, Jews call Tanakh. You ought to know that word if you're going to interact with Jews. Don't call the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament. The moment you do, you've lost your audience. Because it's like, you got the old one, I got the new improved one. So let me show you from yours how mine is right. And you may believe that, and I happen to believe the New Testament is the final edition, the final um, chapter on the Old Testament, but I prefer to say Tanakh, because Tanakh to a Jew means what we call Old Testament. And you will honor their document and their way of thinking without diminishing your point of view at all. Tanakh. Brit Chadashah, well, you don't need to know that. It's what they call the New Testament. Tanakh. He had to know the entire Old Testament by memory. Now listen to me. Listen to me. How many verses right now could you recite with any certainty by memory from the Old Testament? Very good. I find that most Christians, and I do this with students, and I'll give them a sheet of paper and just tell them I'm going to give them a point for every verse they can write on there by memory. I find the average for students, and I've done this in college, seminary, and in high school. I find the average isn't that different between high school, college, and seminary. It doesn't change much. I find the average is about in the area of a dozen verses. And most of those are mm, a paraphrase that sometimes stretches the... These guys knew the entire Old Testament by memory. Think of it. Now, not only that, they were also master teachers, if anything, better than the Torah teachers. They were also recognized by the community, and many of them were healers. Now, I don't know what this does to your perception of Jesus. Every single miracle Jesus did, except raising the dead, is attested in other rabbis. Demons, storms, although more causing storms than stilling storms, um, Blind, lepers, pardon? Feeding people. I don't know of anybody feeding 5,000, but the idea of multiplying food? The water, well, water to wine, that's interesting. I, I, I would have to, I probably would have to backtrack and say that may be another one. 
Okay. Maybe that's, yeah, that's a miracle, but that's good. You're raising good questions. But what I want you to feel is we usually have this idea of, wow, Jesus healed the demon man. Jesus cast out the demons out of the girl. Jesus raised the dead person or the leper. Why didn't they all believe he was the Messiah? And the answer is all the rabbis did that. That did not make Jesus different. Honestly. Now, someone will say, but did they really or was it fake? I don't know. I happen to believe it's real. You can't prove it. But they believed it was real. So it doesn't make any difference in, in the ultimate sense whether it was real or not as far as what they believed. But because of their unique ability to teach Torah and to heal and their ability to teach at such a high level, at such an intriguing level, they received what was known as smicha. Now say it again, smicha. Smicha is today ordination, what a minister, a rabbi gets. It did not mean ordination to them. They didn't have ordination. No one would have ordained a rabbi while the temple was still standing. That would have been a competition, and the temple was number one. Smicha means authority. Authority to what? Authority to teach new ideas. They were so close to God, so brilliant, so wise, so knowledgeable about the text, that God had given them new insights that no one else had ever thought of. Hillel had smicha, Shammai had smicha, Hanina ben Dosa, Shmuel, many had smicha, Gamliel had smicha. There were some, about a dozen we know of by name, which means there probably are a few we don't know by name, who taught with smicha. Now here was their teaching method. It is written, you've heard that that means this, but I tell you it means this. Now who taught like that? Okay. Now listen to the last word, verse of Matthew 7. And the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority as one who had smicha, not as their teachers of the law. Now, I used to think that meant Jesus was one of a kind. It does not. It means Jesus was one of this select group that were considered teachers with smicha, authority to make new teaching. Now, your question ought to be, how do you get it? Thank you. How do you get smicha? The answer is you obviously had to be knowledgeable. You had to memorize the text and do all of this stuff. So it was mostly older men. But you had to have two other rabbis with smicha who in public put their hands on your head and declared that from God, you had God's authority. That's the only way you could get it. Two other rabbis with smicha had to declare in public that you also had that authority. And when that happened, you were then considered a rabbi who could make new teachings. Now, I'd like to have you notice something as you read the New Testament. Over and over and over again. I forgot the number of times. I was going to check that out this morning. I think it's in the area of eight or nine. Don't catch me on that. But several times they come to Jesus and say, where did you get the authority to say that? Now, notice that does not mean they didn't agree with him. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Sometimes they clearly didn't. 
What they're saying is, who gave you smicha? That's a new teaching. Who, who, who gave you this authority? Where did you get it? Who were your two rabbis? Over and over and over again, they ask him that question. Where did you get the smicha? Now, here's the cool part. And this changed, again, my whole attitude about Jesus. There is a Jewish rabbinic technique that is commonly used to this day. And again, if I was any good at it and I had a couple of Jewish students here, I would, I would show you um, in, acted out in class. And I'm not real good at it anyway. I'm not Jewish and I'm not Eastern by nature. What they do is you begin the debate, the dialogue, the discussion, not with a statement, but with a question. And the response from the group comes in the form of a question. Now, the question that comes is, first of all, the answer to this question. And second, it extends this question to a deeper level. So I've been in many a doctoral class where the rabbi begins the class and asks a profound question. Everybody discusses. I mean, you're discussing with the girl across the room. Well, it would be all guys. You're discussing with the guy on this side of the room. You're discussing with the guy over here. You two are talking together. Boom. And then the rabbi says, okay, what is it? And then you answer with a question. And the rabbi thinks, and everybody listens. And then the rabbi comes back and says, okay, then why, what, how, when, where, or if, this, then why? And he asks a question, usually with a scripture verse. You go at it again. Now you come back with a, with a question. I told, by the way, in Luke uh, 3, it says Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. You remember the story? His parents went away and he stayed in the temple and they found him discussing with the scribes. It says, and they were amazed at his... See, we want to say wisdom. That's in there, but that's so Greek. They were amazed at his questions. Jesus was there doing the question, question, question thing. Notice how often in Jesus' teaching life, people come and ask him a question, and he responds not with an answer to us, but with a question, except that his question is the answer. I had a woman who went to Israel with us a few years back. She was a Christian school teacher, and I made kind of an overly dogmatic, I'm not a dogmatic person, but an overly, <laughs> overly dogmatic statement at the beginning. And I said, don't think of Jesus as the answer man. Think of Jesus as the question man. Because if I ask you the right question and you can find your own answer, it's your answer, not someone else's. That's Jesus' genius. She didn't like that. She was very offended. What do you mean? Jesus has always been the answer to me. And he's, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. We were in Tzfat. Uh, Tzfat. Who's, who's the Israel? Tzfat. You go to Tzfat? Okay. We were in an Orthodox Jewish community, the artist colony up in Tzfat. And this lady was there. She's an amateur photographer. Nice lady, by the way. I don't mean this to demean her at all. So she walked in the photographer's shop in Spot Colony, and there's a man in there, an old Polish rabbi. He's got to be 90 at this point. At least he looks like it. Still got the concentration camp numbers tattooed on his skin. Does this really neat Orthodox Jewish stuff. It all has to be abstract because you can't have faces and people and so on because that's images. So she wanted to, she's looking around at this stuff and really blown away by the, the art, I guess. I'm not an artist, so I can't quite relate to that. But she's blown away. So she says to the man, um, may I ask you a question? She had no idea what she was doing. May I ask you a question? He said, yes, what is it? Not yes, yes, what is it? And she said, which is your favorite? And he said, are you married? 
And she thought, well, uh, yes, I have a husband. And before God, she's very lucky, providential, fortunate, because she said, why? If she would have said, yes, I have a husband, he would have said, oh, that had been the end. Then we can't play. But she said, why? And he said, do you have any children? And she said, yes, I have a son and two daughters. Why? And he said, and which is your favorite? She came out of there crying. And she said to me, I met Jesus in that store. And I had to run in and see because I thought maybe she really had. <laughs> Seriously. She said to me, I never understood the power of a question because by answering my own question, the answer came out of my heart instead of out of my head. That's Jesus' genius. He got people to see the truth, not by telling them, but by leading them. Okay, now you know that. Try this one. He was in the temple. Ooh, this is a radical passage. The Sadducees didn't like it. They came to him and said, Who gave you smita to say that? And Jesus said, let me ask you a question. Yehochanan, John, the baptizer, the immerser, you say in, in Hebrew. Yehochanan, John, the baptizer. Where did he get smicha? Now remember, his question answers theirs. So if their question was, where did you get smicha? And his question was, where did John get smicha? What did he just tell them? I got smicha from John. Now, can you think of a time when John declared God's authority being in Jesus? At his baptism. What did John say as Jesus came out of the desert down to the Jordan? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does that sound like authority? Yeah. Amen. But, come on. That's only one. What happens next? What happens, amen. What happens next? What happens next? People, you have to feel the power of this. The Jews did not believe the sky was soft. The Jews believed in the firmament, which meant it was rock hard. Because above it is the ocean of the firmament. And if you put a crack in there, you could end up with another Noah flood. And the text, Mark captures the Hebrew of this. In the text, Mark says, And heaven was ripped open. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son. I love him. Listen to him. You have the only rabbi in history who got his smicha directly from God himself. 